where it says we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so, hence, that's why we have uh, today, the, the title of this is The Walk. And so we want to look at more of what that is, but we also want to be able to look at uh, uh, Ephesians 4.12, which says that we are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. And so those would be the two things that my heart, that at the end of this six-week series, we've got a little better grasp of what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, but also in the sense of what does it mean to the equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And so we're going to focus on those two things, but I promise you as we go through the chapter, we're going to be looking at some things that are going to be really pertinent to our daily walk and our, the intimate relationship that we want to seek to have and build uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read a quote right now that comes out of a, a, a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp. And it's a little bit lengthy, but I need you to kind of, kind of focus in with me on this because there are a couple of points that I think we're going to build on throughout our time here, both this morning and throughout. It says, We are too easily captivated by our self-centered little worlds. But Ephesians 4 propels us beyond a life consumed by personal happiness and achievement. Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. Something immense. Something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into His kingdom, and progressively shaping them into His likeness, and He wants you to be a part of it. Now there's a lot there. There's a lot that, that speaks to what we can succumb to, what we can place value to, but even more so is there is a significant call as to what our purpose here is, not just in the study today, but why we were created, what He has in store for us, and what He wants to do in and through us. And that's what gets me excited about looking at why is it that we jump in at Ephesians chapter 4. Now the reality is that if we just started Ephesians 4, yeah, it would be like starting in the middle of a book and not knowing really where we've come from and how we got there. And so there's a very important part for us that we have to understand a little bit more about the book of Ephesians in general. So I'm going to give you just a quick overview, if I can, in order to launch us off. So Ephesians, chapter, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is broken up, really, you could say, the first three chapters have to do with doctrine, and the second three chapters have to do with duty, okay? Now those words are not as descriptive as we would like it to be, but it really tells us that the first three chapters, they point us upward to see who He is and what He has done in and through us and for us. Okay, I like to say the first three chapters tell us who we are. Chapters 4 through 6, as I said, is duty, which to me is they point us outward. 
they tell us what to do, and they tell us how to go about doing it. And so the, the, the concern there is that if we really don't understand one through three, then we're setting ourselves up for misapplication of four through six. Some of you are familiar with the famous little book out there written by a guy named Watchman Nee. And he has done a, in my mind, he did a great job. I'm not speaking fully on the book itself, but I thought it was good. But he takes three words out of the book of Ephesians in order to get across a very basic message as to what is contained in the book of Ephesians. The first word that he uses is sit. And it takes it out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, and it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the first place that we have to know is that we sit there in the heavenly places. Why? Because he placed us there. We're only there because of what he's done for us, but we have the privilege of sitting. Now what does sitting mean? Well, you guys, most of you in the room today, you're sitting in a chair, you're relaxed at the chair itself, takes the weight off and allows you to rest comfortably. Now that's a little bit dramatic because these chairs are not the most comfortable chairs out there, all right? But I think for, for the reality we begin to understand is that's the position that we start from, and especially as we look at Ephesians chapter, uh, as we move into excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. The second word is walk, and that's why we're picking up in the middle of this the word walk, it's based on Ephesians 4.1, but I need you also to know that the word walk appears eight times uh, in the book of Ephesians. Our verse today, walk in a manner worthy to which you have been called. The second, or excuse me, the third word is to stand. And that comes out of Ephesians 6.11. It says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so we have this, this kind of metaphor in front of us that he says, first we have to sit. And as we sit, we begin to gain a perspective. And only then, after we have been sitting or after we have sat, only then can we, can we begin to walk. And we're walking in a specific way as to which he's called us and equipped us to walk. And only as we have done both of those can we begin to realize the need that we have to stand. And the standing part is that we do have an enemy out there and we have to stand against that enemy, but we're standing based on the reality that first we sat, then we walked, now we stand. All right, that's, it's a really simplistic way of looking at Ephesians, but I think it's important for us to grasp hold of that. I love this because these chapters, as we look at one through three, really help us to understand about our union with Christ. It is foundational, and if it's not your foundation, we will for sure misapply chapters 4 through 6. I, I will tell you that um, one of my roles here at the church, uh, my official title is Director of Adult Ministry. I'm also responsible for small groups. But I, I do get to do, I, I have a counseling background, and so I counsel about 12 to 15 hours a week. When I look at my own personal life, when I look at the lives of people that I walk with in the counseling situation, so many times, so many times, the foundational issue is that 
people have misapplied one through three, and they're trying to live the Christian life out starting in chapter four. And when we misapply that, all sorts of things can surface as a result of that. I've written down just a few of these. First of all, when we start in chapter four, we end up with legalism, we end up with duality, impotence, and this is the one that, that we could easily dismiss, but I wrote down, nothing kingdom worthy. Now the reality of why that becomes is because we're created for kingdom work. And if we have elected to pursue life in such a way that we're producing nothing that's kingdom worthy, we will find ourselves in a deep ditch. And honestly, that's why a lot of folks end up in my office. I also wrote down that if we misapply chapters one through three, we end up with self-righteousness, self-importance, and a faulty identity. All right, what do I mean by a faulty identity? Reality is, is that I will then go out professing to be a Christian, living my life, which I think is according to the Bible, but living my life in every other way that is consistent with what the world has to offer. I will be pursuing adulation. I will be pursuing people's uh, you know, good feelings about me, and I will do whatever it takes in order to perform that. Because why? Because it becomes like oxygen to me. And you deprive me of my oxygen, and you're going to see a different Pat Hoban. You know, I'm, I'm going to begin to, to wither, obviously, because I've got to have the oxygen. And you might begin to see behavior in me that looks inconsistent with what a true Christian would look like, because why? Because I've placed my identity on something that's so faulty, and I'm desperate to get it met. It could actually impact the way that I teach my lesson today if I'm operating off of a faulty identity. I could try to say, well, I, you know, I don't really care about the truth. What I really want to do is I want to be funny as heck. And I'm going to try to woo you all over and have you walking out of here going, he's hysterical. I'm going to be back next week. Okay? And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm not a comedian. And, and I don't, don't claim to be. I hope what I can claim to be is someone who will put the truth out there and then let's wrestle with it together. Okay. So then I think about one through three as well. All right, so who knows? We, we hear this on the radio all the time. Who can tell me what is an OTA? Anybody know from the, from the pro football world, OTAs? It's, it's close. It's actually organized team activities. All right, here's what I picked up. You'll see where I'm going with this in just a minute. It says, recently the NFL has let teams have off-season training sessions officially called Organized Team Activities, or OTAs. Many teams use the OTAs to help develop players and make them better. Now think about this. OTAs come even before the preseason. Then you have the preseason, and then you have the regular season with the hopes that you end up in the postseason and with the ultimate victory of the Super Bowl. I, I know this could have some faulty, you know, kind of logic to it if you play it out to its full extent or something like that. But there's a part of me that wants to say to you guys today, look, Ephesians 1 through 3 is OTAs. You cannot skip it. Why? 
because it's designed that once you get into the real game, you are operating off of the real game plan. And you have been steeped in it enough that you now know what's expected of you and you know where you're supposed to be and where everybody else is supposed to be. And we see how that bleeds over into the preseason. And my concern for many of us is, is that, that in the Christian life, we just blow right through all that. We think we're ready to show up for the regular season on day one, and we're lost, we're confused, and we are in a chaotic situation. And instead of saying, wow, maybe I should have really availed myself to finding out more of what my true identity is, more of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for me, and how all this fits together, we end up looking at the chaotic results and then being frustrated with what we think Christianity is all about. That's the crash and burn method. And today, I'm just giving us a brief understanding of one through three. And if you don't feel like you have a real thorough understanding of, he, of, excuse me, of Ephesians 1 through 3, then you need to talk to somebody. And I'm going to be make myself available. Hopefully someone at your table can be helpful to you with that. Hopefully in your all's table discussions today you'll touch on some of that. But the reality is, is that we want to be operating off of, of that. I, I, I have to laugh because um, Clay Smith isn't here today. But Clay Smith and I go back to third grade, okay? And four, grades four through six, we were part of the Blue Bombers at Bradfield Elementary School. Now, honestly, we didn't really need OTAs for that. And we really didn't need much of a preseason for that because it was pretty much hike the ball and move forward. And, 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 you know, and there was usually a star player, and you just give him the ball, and hopefully everything works out. Honestly, you all, we treat the Christian life oftentimes as if we're back in peewee football. You know, like you're still on the Blue Bombers or whatever team it might be. And the reality is, is that we've been called to something much greater, much higher, much more significant. And that's why I go to that trip from Paul Quote that says, we've been called to work for kingdom things to bring about something that's far greater it started before we were ever born, and it will continue on. So, let me share these two quick quotes that I think really begin to take us to this next place that we've got to grab hold of. This again is from Watchman Nee, and it says, The Christian life from start to finish is based upon the principle of utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, speaking to a group of men in here today, there's not many of us that easily gravitate towards dependence for what we think that dependence is. We see it as weakness, we see it as unhealthy, and we see it as being out of control. And yet, if Watchman Nee's right, and I do believe he's dead on from Scripture, we are called to utter dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott said, children are rightly called dependents. Okay? Some of you dads out there will agree with this. For what they know, they depend on what they've been taught. For what they have, 
They depend on what they've been given. You see? So their dependence, because we've provided them with the things. We've provided them with what they know and what they have. That's true for us. And so what is it that would allow us to move towards a greater dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ? I believe that as we move through this, that's going to become more of the theme for us. So let me just do a, just this quick overview. The phrase, in him, if we look at chapter 1, in him is used nine times. Chapter 1 begins to lay out for us our union with Christ. Now, if you've been around PCPC any length of time, you've heard that phrase numerous times. Hopefully, it's no longer just a phrase to you. Hopefully, it is something that's deeply embedded into your own heart and life and that you've really come to grasp what union with Christ is. But union with Christ is that dependent relationship. It is being connected with Him in such a way that we see that all of life flows out of that relationship with Him. I love the verse in, in uh, chapter 1. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. So if you really heard that, let me read it again. In Him, in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches, richness of His grace. If you take what Stott said, based on that verse, we truly are dependents. If we go to our condition that chapter 2 talks about, we begin to realize the same thing begins to occur. Chapter 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Chapter 2 nails us and tells us, who we are apart from Christ, who we were before we begin to receive the richness of His grace that moved us into this deeper relationship. We see His work also in chapter 4, but it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable richness of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you hear the dependency in that? Do you hear how much it is the work of Christ and it's not anything upon us? that we are dependent upon what He has done for us? Chapter 3, this is what I would say is our reality. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. Boldness for what? To go before the Lord. To enter into the throne room with 
and be in His presence. Why? Not because of what we've done, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. I can't claim any of that that I did it. I am truly a dependent. Men, today, if I can encourage you as Christian men, men who are followers of Jesus, followers of the way, one of the things that we have to realize is we are absolutely dependent. And when we can let go of our, our fleshly need for independence and self-sufficiency, we begin to enter into a deeper, more intimate walk with Christ. So we can only go to chapter 4 now if we take chapters 1 through 3 with us. And so we're ready to do that. Today, we will attempt to cover verses 1 through 3. Not a big part of Scripture, and really, frankly, even I want to focus on just a few elements of it. But 1 through 3 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's a high call. I, I don't think any one of us today can walk out the door and go do that. I know I could give it a great, great all-star effort, uh, but I know that I would end up failing miserably unless I was applying chapters 1 through 3 first unless I walked out of here with the right identity. Paul starts out, and he's saying that as a prisoner of the Lord is how he is walking out his calling in a manner worthy. Oh, wait a minute. In a prison? It's like, yes, because here's the amazing thing. Chapters 1 through 3 set us up to be able to live above our circumstances not in the midst of our circumstances. And guys, most of us in the room today are completely controlled by our circumstances. Circumstances good, life's good. Circumstances trying, life's stressful. Circumstances very poor, man, I'm in the ditch. And so what I want us to realize is that even Paul starts out by saying, I'm living this out in prison. Well, thanks be to God, I'm not aware of any of us walking out the door today to head on down to the county jail. Now, some of you may think, you don't know what my job's like, okay? You don't know what my home life's like. You don't know what my neighbor's like. But I want you to realize what we're talking about here is the wonderful call that takes us from being in our circumstances to living above our circumstances. Now, that's a manner that only we can do if we're rightly applying 1 through 3. Okay, so how am I walking out my manner, my walk in a manner that's worthy? Is it based on my last name, that walking it out as a Hoban? Is it as a member of PCPC? Is it being on the staff of PCPC? Is it being a, a, a proud graduate of the University of Texas? Um, or is it as a child of the king? No. And frankly, unless I get to the last one, the other ones really 
will pale, they, they will take me down a dark road. And so my identity comes from who I am in the Lord Jesus Christ, not from anything that resides in my past or anything that heads me towards the future. So if you look at the three verses that we looked at, he lists out four ways for us to do this walking in a manner that's worthy. It says we are to do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Today we will focus primarily on humility. The reason that I feel comfortable in just taking one of the words is because you cannot do any of them unless you absolutely see what comes first. Because every one of the four things that we're called to do in those, this verse requires us to open our hands up and to see life in a different way. So let's look at this. Um, we take humility, and I loved how Paul and Chad's teaching invariably came back to humility. And it says, why? Because their teaching was always around the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself identifies himself as he's gentle and humble in heart. What does that mean? What does the humble mean? It means to lower yourself. It means to see yourself in a different light. He says he's gentle and humble, uh, and we are in union with him, which calls us into that kind of relationship. And this isn't just characteristic of someone's personality, and if you're an introvert or an extrovert, that's not really the issue. It's what is going on inside of me. Now, I loved when I started thinking about this, how, how Paul, uh, excuse me, Jesus, you know, you think, what, is, what does it be for Jesus to be humble? Well, wouldn't you think the scripture would be replete with him walking around going, if he's really humble, I'm just the son of a carpenter and actually I'm an illegitimate child. I, I don't recall reading that. Is anybody else? But instead, how could he be humble and he still says, I and the Father are one? Why? Because he is telling the truth about his identity. And he can state that because it's true. He's not trying to impress. He's not trying to woo. He's not trying to want you to see him in such a light. He's just stating the truth. And friends, I think sometimes we end up and we think that humility is, well, I've got to just downgrade and, 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 and really speak, you know, in ways about myself. And yet I want you to speak about what's true about you. I, I always say, I have no problem telling people my strengths. Why? Because I'll be happy to tell you my weaknesses just as much. And I believe that humility allows us to place ourselves before people and talk about ourselves in that kind of light. Look what Paul did. Paul says, you know, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. He goes through all the things, and he ended up saying that he was the chief amongst what? Sinners. He saw himself in that light, and yet he also could say, but hey, I could place, if I wanted to, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, born on, you know, circumcised on the eighth day, sat under the teachings of Gamaliel. He could have paraded out this resume, and yet he says, that's really no, no longer worthy. But who I am in the Lord Jesus Christ is what it's all about. If you look on your handout, you'll see Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. 
And it says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, and here's our word, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It goes on to say that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He set aside his deity to enter into our world. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that he might accomplish something for us. And today, we want to follow His example. We are to walk in a manner worthy. What does that look like? Walking in humility. Now, here's, here's the thing that I struggle with. I think most of us in the room today have a, a definition of humility that we think we know how to go about and doing. And it means us being gracious, kind, and those kind of things. And really, I have no problem with any of those. But I want to give you a few very practical things that I think we need to talk about. You know, there's a phrase that oftentimes that we hear, it says, that guy got humbled. And usually that means is that his, his legs got kicked out from under him. He had something happen that made him look bad or it sent him down, you know, and he got humbled. I'm telling you, that's a crock. That does not happen. Um, I can tell you in my own personal life, my, when my life blew up, my circumstances did not produce humility. The devastating things that happened did not produce humility, but they did create a new level of desperation in my life. Now, I'd like you to think about that and why it's important, because humility could have me walking around with my hands in my pocket and my shoulders slumped over. That's not humility. But desperation had me crying out saying, Lord, help. I realized my dependency through my desperation. I realized how out of control I was in my inability to be able to pull off what I thought needed to be pulled off. So the second thing is, my Lord working in my circumstances helped me to embrace my desperation in an all new way. Once I could see that, my rightful understanding of my position in Christ opened the door in my life to a sense of humility. Meaning it's like, wow, I'm, I'm beginning to see this in a whole new way. From there, my desire to have this attitude in me that, was, that Christ was also in Christ Jesus made it even more clear to me. So I'm on this path that's leading me towards a deeper sense of humility. Living with a degree of humility brought so much freedom, it made me want more. More humility, more living out of my union with Christ. Then the Spirit of God living within me will bring forth humility as I simply let Him work in and through me. This is true for many of you all in the room today, and I've seen and witnessed it over the years. But it is not that we go through some devastating thing and that produces humility. 
what that can easily produce just as well is bitterness, resentment, and, and a calloused attitude and hardened heart. What he wants to do through our desperate situations is bring us to a position where we realize our dependency upon him and we realize now we can walk out of that sense of humility. Only then can I walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which I've been called. Only then can I be patient. Only then can I bear with one another in love. Only then can I see why I want to fight and maintain the unity of the Spirit. So my circumstances are here. I want to live above my circumstances. But man, when my circumstances go crazy, I pray that it leads me to greater dependency upon Him. So how humility practically changes us. It changes how you see yourself, therefore how you see others. I'm no longer the center of my attention. Hopefully others are. George Hansen, he's not here today, but he's a dear brother. He's my, he's my uh, insurance agent. I don't know if anybody else uses George. Okay. If there's no humility, think about this. George is a friend. He's my insurance agent. I pay him. I pay him, therefore what? I own him. I don't think so. And yet, that's the way that we live life, is that people should be indebted to us because of something. And therefore, we expect to be compensated for it. And, 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 all. and the next thing I know, I can be a real horse's ass talking to people, customer service agents on the phone, because why? Because I, I think I'm owed. And I don't see humility in that. I don't see bearing with one another in love in that. I think it should change us on some incredibly practical ways. Then I have to ask myself, am I out to prove myself? or to serve others. That is a great juxtaposition for us to take into consideration. Am I out to prove myself or to serve others? Am I seeking to be noticed or seek to notice? You see the difference in that? If I'm seeking to be noticed, I will not see any need that you all have. I will not be aware of the man that I look out and has a tear in his eye. Why? because I'm all consumed about myself. It's, it's, uh, recently, I, I had a situation that reminded me of something that happened back in, in Colorado. And I lived there for 16 years. And, you know, we have this kind of this pattern that we can go through. And if we're not careful, it becomes so entrenched in our lives, we're not even aware of it. And it can be, man, we screw up something really big. And then somebody finds out about it. Instead of saying, yeah, I screwed up really big, I lie about it. And then once I lie about it, then I'm going to turn it around and I'm going to blame it on the other person as if they are responsible for it. And one of the beautiful things that I witnessed one time was a man that as we begin to talk through that, and as he began to see the pattern of sin, lie, and blame, he started moving up to the edge of the couch. And he, and he was very, very kind of, you know, like, come on, come on. And I'm looking at my watch and I'm thinking maybe something's wrong and, and my clock has stopped or something. And I'm, I'm finally, it's like 15 minutes still left in the hour-long session. 
And I'm like, where are you, what do you, do you need to leave? And guys, he said, I got to get out of here. I got to go talk to my wife. He couldn't get out of my office fast enough. Why? Because when the sin, lie, blame was exposed and he received it in humility, he couldn't go correct it fast enough. And most of the time, guys, we just double down. Why? Because somehow we've made it too difficult to move towards humility. So we end up with what I call the revised Texas version of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a fine upstanding citizen, urge you to walk with your head up, with confidence and self-assuredness, with determination, letting people's problems roll off your back, eager to let everyone know how right you are. When in fact it says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Men, you have an opportunity right now at your table to engage in a conversation that would demonstrate humility as opposed to arrogance, as opposed to control, as opposed to maintaining an image that you want to protect. And you can engage in a different kind of conversation around your tables today, around what we've talked about. It would be my hope and prayer that this would be the start for us of a six-week journey that takes us to look deeper at what it is to walk in a manner worthy of the call. Today we start with humility. I want to close in prayer, and I'm going to, I'm going to pray Ephesians chapter 3, the end part of that, as our closing prayer. And then I'd like to dismiss you to your table discussions around the table. You've got your questions there. If by some chance you're here today and you haven't officially registered, my card is in the back table back there. Take that, send me an email so I can get you onto our mailing list, okay? So bow with me in prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.